Whenever Britain's young people are seen as troublesome menaces, there's one call certain right-wingers can rely on. Bring back national service. Oh, for those glorious days when all that was required to sort out law and order and teenagers' expectations of themselves was 18 months of good, old-fashioned military training for all physically fit males between the ages of 17 and 21. It's been 60 years this month since the last national servicemen, and it was servicemen, left the army, but their memory is still potent to media pundits and members of the public. The Telegraph's Alison Pearson said of national service, it would be a blessing to a generation of young people who are addicted to social media. The Daily Express said it should be reintroduced in response to an incident of antisocial behaviour. And GB News recently held a debate about it, of course they did, in which a retired army general questioned, in principle, what's wrong with doing something for a couple of years for your country? Did he have a valid point to make for young people out of education and employment? And will a trial of a different kind of universal national service in France next year influence the government next door? To tell us what national service was really like and tell us why its memory looms so large, I'm delighted to welcome back to the bunker Professor Richard Vinan, historian and author of many books including National Service, A Generation in Uniform, 1945 to 1963. Welcome Richard, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. So firstly, um, could you outline for you know us youngsters how national service came about in the UK after the Second World War? Well, it came about partly just because it was a continuation of wartime service. So there'd been conscription during the Second World War um, and it was never really abolished. People went on being called up at the same time as they're being discharged from the army during the war. And then really it fulfills, I suppose, three kinds of needs. So first of all, Britain's just got big military commitments in 1945, needs to maintain garrisons, all sorts of places that it's occupying sometimes for the first time at the end of the war. Then it increasingly moves towards preparing for the Cold War. So there's an increasing emphasis on training up a reserve of uh, men who could be recalled to the colours if there was another outbreak of all-out war. And then thirdly, and increasingly, troops are needed for wars of decolonization. So wars in Malaya, Kenya, Cyprus, not so much wars to resist decolonization as wars to kind of control the pace of decolonization use up troops. So that really the keys to national service are, A, there's a military need for the armed forces, especially the army, need people beyond the the numbers they can get. In addition to that, of course, birth rates in the late 1920s, early 1930s, the time hit by the interwar depression, birth rates have been low. So actually there's a shortage of young men for a time in the late 1940s and 1950s. And there's also the problem that civilian life becomes a bit too nice, or at least not nasty enough. So the development of the welfare state, and also, of course, this is a time of very full employment, that makes recruiting for the armed forces difficult. Because the truth is, in lots of ways, the armed forces before 1939 for young men are what the workhouse is for old people. They're the last resort if you can't get a job or you can get something to eat. And after 1940, there are very few people who are driven to that kind of last resort. So for that reason, military recruiting becomes much more awkward for a time. So why do you think there is this harking back to the joys of the days of national service now? Is it basically a nostalgia for some sense of community that it brought young people, which is completely displaced, or is it something completely different? I mean, first of all, one should be careful about where this nostalgia is coming from 
and who's expressing it. So I think some men who went through national service feel nostalgic for it. Now, for a variety of reasons, partly because everyone gets to an age where they start regretting not being 19 anymore. Um, (laughs) Usually the moment where you stop remembering what being 19 was like. Obviously, there's that kind of nostalgia. I think some men genuinely did enjoy bits of it. So things like, in some cases, seeing foreign countries for the first time is something some men remember as having been attractive. I think some men remember the kind of camaraderie of national service as a good thing. And of course, it's one of those experiences where people who think about it positively are much more vociferous than people who don't think about it. So if you you know, are running a radio phone-in programme and say, phone in and tell us what national service was like, you're going to get a high representation of those people who have nice stories to tell about national service and not people telling negative stories. And even people who choose to talk about national service will talk about particular bits. So I was very struck several times when I was working on national service, I interviewed men and they would tell me particular stories. So one man, I mean, you know, was kind of benignly neutral about national service, said, you know, he'd had some good times, um, wasn't particularly hostile to it. But only when I said, by the way, did you know one particular person, famous case of a man who committed suicide during his training, did he suddenly say, yes, he was one of my best friends. And it was obviously a very traumatic memory, but not a memory he would have talked about at all. A man called Anthony Copley, who's dead now, and there's no kind of secret about the story I'm about to tell you, but he and I talked a lot and I knew that he was gay. I mean, I knew because I kind of knew him through mutual friends and so on. So I wanted to know what it was like to be a gay man in the British Navy in the 1950s. And he was very nice and very helpful, but at first, understandably, rather reluctant to talk about his private life. And so, you know, we talked about all sorts of things. He initially kind of rather brushed off my attempts to ask him about his sex life in the 1950s, not surprisingly. Um, But then eventually he did open up and talked about being gay in the Navy. But I always got the sense there was something he wasn't quite telling me. And on the whole, his view of national service was quite benign. I mean, he thought he'd seen interesting parts of the world. He thought it had been an exciting experience for a young man. And just before he died, so he was dying of cancer, he wrote a kind of privately published memoir. And he sent me a copy. And this memoir revealed that, in fact, at the end of his national service, while he was still a member of the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, so he's doing his reserve service that you have after national service, uh, he's arrested for soliciting, which is, of course, you know, criminal offence in the 1950s. He's prosecuted. He's subjected to chemical castration. And, of course, as a result of this, he loses his commission in the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. So, actually, there's this amazingly traumatic experience, which, in the end, he did reveal and was very public about, I think, but which for a long time when talking about national service, he wouldn't have talked about. So that sometimes, even within their own accounts, men are tremendously contradictory. And this suppression of the traumatic sides of national service, you know, extends then, doesn't it? You know, becomes part of, you know, this sort of collective memory or, you know, popular consciousness. You know, in your book, you know, you talk about how some people's experiences of national service were incredibly mundane, but then others were very, very frightening, you know, being deployed to Malaya, Kenya and Cyprus to address colonial emergencies and, you know, with um, some horrific things that happen out there. Are there other things people don't realise about the toughness of those times? 
I should stress that the kind of very traumatic things I've just described are obviously rare. And in fact, active service in national service is quite rare. So when you say the balance of tedium versus terror, I think for most men, most of their national service was more tedium than terror. So my father, in some ways, a very characteristic national serviceman of the late 1940s, uh, spent the whole time on Air Force bases in Britain. He didn't fly aeroplanes. He occasionally flew in aeroplanes, but he wasn't a pilot or anything like that. He never left the country. Most of the time, he was just a clerk, really. And so didn't have unpleasant memories of national service, but nothing very much happened. So the tedium, I suppose, is part of it. I think the other things to stress are there, there are two kinds of change over time with national service. So one is very obviously just the change from the late 1940s to the late 1950s. And during that time, Britain becomes a much more prosperous country. As a result of that, actually, in some ways, national service becomes easier because, you know, barracks become more comfortable, things like that. Also, for various reasons, the armed forces are needing fewer people by the end of this period. So it becomes much easier to avoid national service. And in fact, towards the end of the 1950s, you do eventually get to a point where less than half of young men who were technically eligible for national service are really being called up. The authorities are using all sorts of things like medical deferments and exemptions as means of reducing the number of people they actually take. So national service in that sense is beating, um, biting less deeply into British national life. But the other change over time, of course, is what happens to you in the course of your time as national service. And I think the things to stress there are that it's not kind of even. So when you look back on 18 months or two years later on that people do, I think it's not that it's always kind of an equal amount that they measure every, uh, that they remember every bit of that national service. So basic training, which is really very short, a few weeks, is the time I think that is often remembered most by men. And that's the kind of first encounter with army life. So separation from home. A lot of these people are wartime kids. So they've grown up in a world where they're unlikely to have been separated from their parents very much beforehand. So sometimes that is a very uncomfortable experience. Lots of men talk about hearing people crying in the next bed during national service on their first night away from home in the barracks. And then again, especially early on, uh, basic training can be a very kind of austere, sometimes rather brutal experience. Obviously, one of the aims of basic training is to toughen men up. Uh, and so some of them remember this as a very difficult time. I think if you'd asked men at the time, rather than in retrospect, a lot of them would have said their first night of national service is the worst night of their life. If you'd asked them six weeks later when they're passing out at the end of basic training, when they survived, they feel proud, they feel fitter, they feel kind of, you know, they won in the sense that they've kind of shown they can do it. A lot of them would actually say that was a very good time, that, you know, they felt proud and they felt they'd achieved something. And then if you'd asked them 18 months later towards the end of the national service, I think a lot of them would say they were bored sick and that, you know, nothing very much had happened for a long time. And then, of course, if you ask them a few years after national service in the 50s and 60s, when they've gone back into an economy of full employment, I think at that stage, most of them don't have a very positive memory of national service, actually, because they often see it as having interrupted what would otherwise be quite a kind of benign civilian life. So if you look at the early 60s, it's very useful to think about all those Daily Mail columnists being made to go back to 1963. <laughs> and yes. to see what people were saying about the armed forces then. So 1963 is the year of, oh, what a lovely war. 
it's the year of chips with everything or the, the time of chips with everything, the time of a succession of things, some of which are explicitly about national service, some of which are just about the armed forces generally, all of which are actually very anti-military. This is a time when British culture is very anti-military. It's the time of private eye, which is founded, of course, all by ex-national servicemen, very mocking of authority and patriotism and so on mm. and so forth. So it's not at all the kind of world that conservatives now tend to assume came out of national service. And then, of course, now you get people looking back on it from a very long time ago. And as I say, a particular group of people sometimes looking back on it and thinking, well, this was fantastic. But I think you wouldn't actually get that even memory of the same kind at all points of time. So this idea that um, certain uh, right-wingers are interested in, that you know, national service will fix unruly men, actually it didn't do that, and in some cases did absolutely the opposite, you're saying? Uh, I think it was never intended to do that. So no one ever thinks at the time that national service is going to be good for people. Nowadays, you'd think, that the armed forces did this as a favour to young people. <laughs> yes. And in fact, one of the strange things, although you cited a general saying national service perhaps should be brought back, when you talk to senior officers now, often they'll say, well, of course, we didn't really like national servicemen because they weren't proper soldiers. And they give again this impression that it was like you know, a burden for them. Now, it may indeed have been that they didn't much like conscripts. They didn't need them. And it was very much the armed forces who pressed for this. And it was the armed forces at the end of national service who pressed for uh, a retention of some degree of national service. So in fact, when we talk about the end of national service, the very last men to come out in May 1963 are actually kept for an extra six months because the army can't do without them. So there are this particularly unfortunate generation who are called up at the very end and then kept for this extra time. So on the one hand, National service is not meant to be a social service. It's meant to be something for the armed forces, not for society. It's also striking that quite a lot of people, including conservatives at the time, are not at all sure that time in the armed forces is going to be good for young men. Because after all, you know, the armed forces are full of rough old boys. They are sometimes areas of sexual delinquency of various kinds. Homosexuality, of course, is illegal in the 1950s. But there's quite a wide perception that homosexuality is quite widely practiced in the armed forces. Very funny, if you look at the evidence to the Wolfenden Committee, the committee that eventually proposes the legalization of some degree of homosexuality, they get a lot of their information from the service departments, from the armed forces. And they get very funny accounts from the Air Force who say, well, you know, there's homosexuality in the Air Force, but it's not really flying chaps. It's, you know, medics and people like that. And then the Navy say the same thing. And then the Army say, frankly, old boy, it's the Brigade of Guards, because the Brigade of Guards, of course, stationed in London, often kind of available as um, company for uh, men looking for company in Hyde Park, that kind of thing. So that there's a perception sometimes that the Army is rather sexually dangerous. There's a perception that the Army is violent. Obviously, a certain proportion of entrants into the armed forces have always been partly criminal. So quite often, far from seeing this as something that's good for young men, the assumption is that these are rather innocent young men going into an institution that might actually be difficult for them or corrupting for them. And it's also important to stress that people often now talk about things like unemployment, people hanging around on the streets, the idea that somehow national service was a solution for all these things. 
the, the point to stress is that national service occurs at a time when there's massively full employment and also at a time when Britain's coming out of the Second World War so that the young men who are called up, especially the young men who are called up at first, are used to incredibly hard work. Mm. But it's not that these are kind of, you know, 16-year-olds been hanging around playing on their PlayStation until they get <laughs> called up. They're boys who've left school at 14, and then they've been working in factories. And, of course, especially those who left school during the war have been working very, very long hours in factories. So there's an interesting report by the RAF, the late 1940s, and they say that they're worried about national servicemen because they have an industrial attitude. And at first I thought, this must mean like industrial as in trade union. It must mean they're all kind of bullshit. Mm. But eventually I realised what they meant was that these young men had an attitude, they were used to hard work. And actually, they found the Air Force rather kind of slack. You know, they were used <laughs> to factories where they were working 60 hours a week, turning out Lancaster bombers. And then they turn up in the RAF. And, you know, once the parades are finished, there's a lot of kind of hanging around and paperwork and, you know, rather pointless activity. So these men actually want to be getting on with things rather more than they are in the armed forces. And one of the things a lot of men will say about national services is that there was an awful lot of hanging around, an awful lot of rather pointless activity. The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We are proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run-up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. There is, of course, national service in many other countries across Europe still, and not just, you know, and we're not just talking about where it's eastern places like Belarus, you know, including countries that sit high on the happy countries index like Denmark and Finland, then one and two, and you know, they have uh, national service. Obviously, these are different times, these are different countries, but could we learn lessons from them in terms of how they use national service? It's hard to know. There's a whole different culture, obviously. Most countries that still have military service, have traditions of military service and a tradition of military service which is lacking in Britain. So in Britain, there's a particular group of people from the First World War until 1963 who were often affected by conscription in either one of the two world wars or post-war national service. But basically, Britain has always had a small armed forces, especially a small army, and a professional army and an army that's in some ways, quite removed from civilian society. Other countries will often have a tradition of assuming that conscription is a means of defending democracy. So particularly in France, there's a very strong tradition dating back to the French Revolution, which is the idea that this kind of mass call-up, the levée en masse, is a way of kind of defending the republic. So for that reason, it's more kind of politically rooted, I think. I think, obviously, there are neutral countries for whom the idea of a, a potential mass army is very important as a means of defence. So 
Obviously, until very recently, Sweden has not been part of NATO. Switzerland is probably the country where military services most were kind of deeply rooted in the national culture. And that's a very particular kind of idea of a citizen's army, which I think is very alien to Britain. And of course, all these things go with all sorts of double edges. So Switzerland, probably in some ways the country with the most universal military service, also the country in Europe of all democratic countries that gives women the vote last. So there's always a link between the idea of military service and citizenship. That's also going to be a link between men and citizenship. Um, right. So I think there's quite a double edge there. France, probably the country most associated with the tradition of universal military service. They have really all but abolished it now. I mean, they have this day of citizenship. But I think at the moment, even that is not actually being observed. Macron has been talking about bringing a, back a, a kind of universal national service in 2024 in term time for high school students in France. So that suggests something quite different from you know what our ideas of national service are. I think it absolutely is very different. And Macron is born, if I remember rightly, in 1977. So Macron, of course, himself is the first French president, I think, in a long time who didn't do military service. And so I think what he's talking about is much more a kind of idea of citizenship and social integration. But it's a pretty light touch kind of thing. It's also, of course, something which is going to be or, or does now affect both girls and boys, but affect them at quite a young age. I have to say, military service, when it existed in France up till 1996-1997, was not tremendously popular. And I can remember, I mean, in 1982, in the middle of the Falklands War, I went and washed dishes in a French hotel in a kind of Orwellian period in my life. And the two things that struck me were, A, um, that lots of the old people in this um, hotel imagined that I was actually dodging the draft from England. And I had to explain that I really thought the parachute regiment could do without me uh, when it came to fighting <laughs> the Falklands War. But the other thing was that the prospect of military service did haunt a young man's life in France. You know, it was a tremendous kind of disruption coming up. And especially as far as some kind of working class young men was concerned, it could be a pretty gruesome experience. So if you were, Richard, at a gathering, a party, and somebody heard that you were an expert on national service and thought that you were maybe more positive about it in general than um, the more nuanced take on it than you have, and they would say to you, oh, I, I think it's a great idea, let's bring it back today, how would you respond to them in a way that would uh, change their minds? Well, I, I have had this experience um, very dramatically, in fact, and in some ways rather tragically. So uh, a radio station years ago organised one of these kind of discussions. And I was alongside a very nice woman who'd had a horrible experience because her very young son had been killed, I think, in Afghanistan fighting with the Royal Marine Commandos. And so I didn't want to be in a situation where I was saying that I thought that the armed forces were a bad thing. I didn't want to do anything that would hurt her more than she'd already been hurt. But in fact, in talking to her, it struck me that actually she she talked about her son in very moving ways, but in lots of ways it was a perfect argument against national service because her son was obviously a very committed person and he'd gone through Royal Marine Commando selection and training, which is something that's very hard to get through. And what struck me was that he obviously 
in his short life had achieved things that were worthwhile and had done something that had made him feel very positive about himself. But that was precisely because he wanted to do it. And so I think, you know, young people ought to do difficult things. And it's great to to do things that are challenging and to be disciplined. But the key thing is that at some level, they have to want to do those things. So I don't think you can impose those entirely from the outside. You know, maybe it's good for young men to join the armed forces and to be subjected to all the kind of rigours of army life, military life, but only if at least at first they've chosen that. So I think, you know, whether young people become ballet dancers or, um, you know, cooks or whatever, it's they who should make the choice about what they're going to subject themselves to, um, not the Ministry of Labour, which is who drafted them into national service, uh, and probably not the Daily Mail either. No. <laughs> well, we'll hopefully, hopefully some of them will be listening. We'll take that on board today. Thank you so much for coming on The Bunker today, Richard. It's been great to talk to you. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much. If you like what you've heard, you can support The Bunker on Patreon. Just search Bunker Podcast and Patreon, and for as little as £3 a month, you can help us to continue to make the shows you know and love. I'm Jude Rogers. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Hutton, and I grew up watching war movies with my dad, but my kids just don't get it. So I had to find someone to watch them with me. And that's me, Duncan Weldon, and I do get it. So I was only too happy to join Rob and guests such as Al Murray, Helen Lewis, and Saturn Sangara as we rewatch the greatest war movies of all time. So join us on War Movie Theatre to talk about classics from Where Eagles Dare to Zulu to The Sound of Music. That's War Movie Theatre, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Jude Rogers. The producer was Kasia Tomashevich, with audio production by me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, and our group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.